So, uh, can you just tell me your name? I'm Farhat Alimbaru, the Director of Environment, Second Vice President's Office. In Zanzibar. In Zanzibar, yes. Okay, so as I told you, I'm going to Pemba. Yes. So can you just tell me a little bit about what Pemba is like? Pemba is very hilly and very green. 126 uh, areas have been affected by, by climate change. 126. You just said, Mabadliko Tabianchi in Swahili. Mabadliko Tabianchi. And you get a lot of story that people will tell you. It's like you're threatening the, the livelihood, the food security in, in that sense. I'm Zara Sethna, and I'm the Director of Communications for the International Institute for Sustainable Development. This is the Down to Earth podcast. This podcast is about extraordinary ideas for a better world. So this episode of the podcast is about a trip that I recently took to Pemba. Pemba is in the Indian Ocean, about 50 kilometers or 30-odd miles off the coast of Tanzania. It's part of the Zanzibar archipelago of islands. And the main island of Zanzibar is about 50 kilometers to the south of Pemba. To give you an idea of size and scale, Pemba is quite small. You could fit Pemba into Prince Edward Island about six times over and has a population of fewer than 400,000 people. So it's a very small place and it's a very quiet rural island. It was once uh, covered by indigenous forest. The entire island was a very forested, very green place. And today, much of that forest has been cut down. But it's still a very rural, bucolic place. Driving through, you go from small village to small village, and in between, really, all you see are farmer's fields or, or sort of brush forest. Okay. Uh, my name is Mbaruk Musa Omar, and uh, I'm an executive director uh, and a co-founder member for local organization called the Community Forest Member. Mbaruk Musa Omar was my guide uh, through the island of Pemba. He's currently the executive director of an organization called Community Forests Pemba, and he's born and raised on the island. He spent his entire life there, and he's a huge advocate for the potential of the place. So he showed me around the day I arrived pretty much most of the island. We went right up to the northern tip of the island where there was a lighthouse built by the British in the early 1900s. And from there, you could really look out across the whole northern part of the island and get a sense of the, the coastline and the gorgeous blue waters that surround the island. To get to the lighthouse at the tip of the island, you have to drive through a nature preserve, which is the only protected area of indigenous forest still remaining on the island. And it's really remarkable as you drive through because the trees are humongous. Um, they go right up into the sky. And as you drive into the forest preserve, it's suddenly darker and cooler. And you can hear birds and animals in the brush. It's really, as you would imagine, a forest. But it was really a remarkable difference inside and outside the preserve. And you go through that nature preserve and come back out into a more open area. And from the top of the lighthouse, you can really see the difference between where the forest used to be and where it's been cleared now. There are trees, but they're quite small, 
um, sort of more like brush, more like bushes rather than trees. Most of the island has been cleared, has been deforested. And to think that it was once covered by this amazing indigenous forest is, uh, is really something to see. Pemba uh, was known as a green island. Arabs, they call Pemba as a, uh, Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera. It means that the island covered with the, with the nature of the forest, not a planted forest there. So that nowadays, if, even that maybe you come here and you say that, okay, Baruku Pemba is nice, there's a lot of forest, there's a lot. Of... No, for me, now we have already destructed the, the, the island. We don't. Have, I went to Pemba really to, to see what climate change looks like on the ground, um, what it does to people who really rely on nature and natural resources for their daily existence, um, and how they're adapting. Now, we have a problem of pest here, you know? And we have a problem like a storm sometimes here. I can say that every year right now, every year we have a problem of a storm. We have a problem of rains because the rain is not rainy as normal that I remember when I was so young. So, so I, I was asking people when I went to Pemba, uh, what does climate change mean to you and how is it affecting you? Um, what, what kind of changes are you seeing? And without a hesitation, everybody I spoke to could verifiably say, yes, things have changed. Things have changed a lot. Uh, for me, uh, I can say that climate change is, is a big disaster. It's a big disaster. Um, so everybody in Pemba really understands that climate change is real. They see it. They've, they live it. The weather that they expect to see in a place at a certain time is no longer predictable or reliable for them. Uh, we have a problem of high level of seawater. Uh, those pe- people now, they are cultivating rice, they are nearest with the seashore. They are a poor family. So if they don't have another side to cultivate rice there, what they will do? They will suffer. Rice farming is very common in Pemba. And with uh, climate change, sea levels are rising. And that's causing seawater to infiltrate into the rice paddies. Um, it's devastating crops for, for many farmers in Pemba. People suffer and suffer because of the high level of water that is coming inside. Also, one of the effects of a changing climate that is undeniable in a place like Pemba is the excessive heat. is increasing every, every year, every year. I was there in February, and I was coming to Pemba from Canada, where we were having a, a cold winter, and I was thinking how lovely it will be to be in a tropical island where it's warm. But this was beyond warm. This was extreme heat. We spent uh, all our time running from the shade of one tree to another because you couldn't stand in the open sun. It was just way too hot. But right now, 37. So I can say that 9 degrees Celsius are added up. I would definitely say that the people in Pemba are on the front lines of climate change. Um, And it's not just the people in Pemba, but people who live in a small island state, um, they're very vulnerable. Here in Pemba, all small islands around in East Africa, scientists, they said that, during 2100, they believe that 
all of the island will be under the, the sea. So that if, but if we will not take an action, all of the island will be under the, the sea. So we are fighting to protect these 2,100 for our islands. We have no anywhere to go. From what I understand, in the late 19th century, uh, Pemba was ruled by Omani sultans. And the ruling sultan at that time made a decision to use Pemba to grow cloves, which were a very valuable cash crop at the time. And that's where the deforestation really started. A lot of the original indigenous forest was cut down in order to plant clove trees. And then it continued as the population grew and people needed firewood or they needed construction materials. Um, They needed to build further settlements or clear land to grow crops. Um, So all the trees began to be cut down then. Over time, clove prices crashed and the industry was sort of abandoned. And livelihoods on Pembus turned then to farming, to fishing, to seaweed cultivation and raising animals and just small-scale sort of farmer enterprises. When that happened, when, when clove prices crashed and people changed their livelihoods, they started farming things like rice and cassava, peanuts and, and fruits like pineapples and bananas and mangoes. But a lot of the agricultural practice was growing monocultures. A field would be cleared and it would be planted over with just cassava. Year after year, the same crop, cassava, uh, or all bananas, or all rice. And so that has the tendency to, um, to lead to soil erosion, to lead to a lack of soil fertility. But also cutting down all the trees has released carbon into the atmosphere, and it's sort of accelerating the effects of climate change because of the deforestation. Mbarak, who was my guide, is the head of an organization called Community Forest Pemba. Community Forest Pemba is a sister organization to a Canadian organization called Community Forest International. Its main mission was about reforestation. It was about planting back the trees that had been cut down and in doing so also raising awareness amongst the local community about the effects of cutting down trees and um, and what it means and how it affects the overall ecosystem. I believe they started in Pemba in 2008 to reforest the island and so far they've planted something like two million trees. So that for community forest Pemba, this is our core activity that we are doing there to compare with all intervention that we are doing there. We are establishing community NASA and then to participate on tree planting every Masika season, every rain season there in different areas. Around. So they, they started out helping farmers to plant fruit trees and timber trees and mangroves alongside their annual crops. And as they were doing this, an idea came up. To take the reforestation idea a step further... So this new idea was a spice forest. Why not grow permaculture forests or edible forests that would support growing the spices that made Pemba famous back in the 19th century and and create an edible environment um, 
that would have a healthy ecosystem that would provide shade and it would also be able to provide valuable crops such as cinnamon, vanilla, pepper, black peppers, vanilla, and the other fruit trees, cinnamon, cardamom, cardamom, cinnamon, cinnamon, and uh, 16 stalls of cardamom. All of those crops have a lot of value and can be sold on on the global market um, and create an income stream for for farmers in Pemba. So the team from Community Forest Pemba took me to meet Bakiri Mataka. Other people call me Mataka Spice. Mataka Spice, Mr. Spice. <laughs> He's one of the foremost uh, spice farmers in that area of Pemba, and he's been doing it for something like 25 years. So in his local area, people who are interested in getting into spice farming always go to Buanamataka to learn about how he's done it and his successes, and even to, to get seedlings uh, for vanilla plants from him. He said that uh, when they, they depend only on cloves, it, it, it was a sort of, it delays to, to, to get incomes because maybe cloves will only bear cloves after two years. So there is a long wait. Waiting two years with this lot of domestic challenges here. It's one of the reasons why they, they have been deciding that we should have another spice crop with it so that we can have the money yeah. periodically. Diversify. Yes. Is that to, to spread the risk? So if one crop fails, at least you have another crop that you can still harvest? Yeah. Yeah? There were two people from Community Forest Pemba who took me to meet the spice farmers. One was named Yaya, one was Omar. Um, and they work on a day-to-day basis with the farmers, helping them with training, giving them advice, helping them with their business practices and their horticultural practices. Okay. So we visited a couple of spice farms, and two really stuck out for me. One was owned by a guy named Hamad, and the other was owned by a woman named Bimajo. Ginger? Oh, no, cassava. Oh, cassava. <laughs> I, didn't know, I don't know what cassava looks like. This is cassava. Ah. Mm-hmm. Hamad's farm was really remarkable. It was behind a cluster of small houses. And we yeah. walked through a small sort of vegetable garden, a small field where some, someone had been growing cassava. And then you almost abruptly enter into his spice forest. Um, and immediately it was much, much cooler, which was very welcome because it was so hot otherwise. And it was really lush. Um, it was also quite hilly. So we were walking downhill and then entered into kind of a, a valley area. And he had been doing so many things. He was working on a gravity-fed okay. irrigation system. Wow. Um, and he was explaining about the water? Yes. Ah, he's, uh, he's explaining about the... He intended to to fix a water tank over there, top of the hill, uh-huh. and then to distribute the. He had 
beehives, also supported uh, by Community Forest Pemba. So he had a number of different beehives around the forest, quote-unquote forest, because it was just a small plot of land, um, different types of bees, and that was to help pollinate all the different crops, as well as to provide him another income source, um, providing honey. How many beehives do you have? Twelve. Okay. What really impressed me about Hamad's farm was how diverse it was. He had so many different things growing in rather a small area. Uh, avocado. So much avocados. Lychees. Iliki. In Isile. Shok shok. Yeah. Rambutan. 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 That is the Rambutan trees. It is. And um, avocado, more than 20. Yeah. Mango is uh, 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, clove trees. 75, 175. 175. 175. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, vanilla, uh, more than 900. Wow. All in one and a half acres. Yeah, this place. Uh, he also had uh, the valuable spice crops like pepper and cardamom and cinnamon. But it was all there and it was all interspersed amongst each other. So it wasn't sort of tidy rows, as you might imagine, in a farm. It was um, more of a, I want to say chaotic, but I think it was planned chaos. So, for example, vanilla or black pepper, they grow on vines. And very often the vines in Hamad's farm were attached to bigger fruit trees, uh, like a banana tree or a coconut tree. So the larger tree provided shade, which is a really important element for growing these spices successfully. But he just had so much going on in the farm, which was really incredible. It spreads the risk across a number of different crops, um, and it gives them a source of income throughout the year. So this is what that we are promoting. We are told, that's what we are telling the farmers to, to practice the farm to be like this, because, of course, as far as you have very small plots, then you have different plants, then you can harvest different type of crops. One and a half acres, Hamadi is able to have a, a profitable farm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But not only profitable farms, but of course you can see the fresh air within, the, the environment itself. Sometimes you can, you, can, you, can be, you can be able to sit here all the day long without being tired. Yeah. Yeah. So healthy environment. Yes. As you came to the edge of his spice forest, you could see the difference between how he was doing his cultivation and how his neighbors were doing it. Um, because right at the edge of the spice forest, suddenly it was bright sunshine on the other side and everything had been cleared. And it looked very dry. It looked like it would be a hard place to try and grow something. The sun was just beating down. But inside Hamad's farm, in his spice forest, it was cool and it was lush and there was a wind blowing and it was moist. He had uh, mulch on the ground. It was just a, a remarkable difference between how he was doing his farming and how his neighbors were doing it. 
kwa kutushauri kupanda kwa kufanya kitalu. Another farmer that I met is Bimajo. She's a divorced woman with six children to support. And she got into spice farming just about a year and a half or two years ago through Community Forest Pemba. Um, she was given a bit of land to work by her family, which was very lucky for her. And she converted it into this spice forest. And it's a very small piece of land. Um, and again, you, you walk through other farmers' plots in order to get to Bimajo's plot. And the other farmers had cleared everything and had planted crops in rows, as you would imagine a sort of vegetable garden would look. It was it was cleared, it was open, and things were grown in rows. It was very hot. And then you came to Bimajo's, and you almost felt like you weren't in a, in a farm plot anymore because it was this area full of trees and brush, and it almost looked like someone hadn't even started farming there. It was um, it was much more kind of jumbled and a little bit more chaotic. It didn't seem like it was planned out in the same way. But it was welcome to walk inside her little plot because, again, it was so much cooler with the shade. Of course, actually, she said while she was starting this to improve this plot, uh, of course, her neighbors who are planting cassava, they said that she doesn't know what she's doing. So, but after, after she improved these plots, then some of them were imitating. So there are other neighbors now has been doing this. One of the so she had some taller trees growing with some smaller crops underneath them. Um, and it's really important to have that that level, the the taller trees to give shade to the smaller crops so that they can grow and, and thrive. Bimajo was very excited to show us her very first vanilla beans from seedlings that she had planted about a year and a half before. Bimajo's first vanilla. And she is very lucky that after only two and a half years, to have vanilla. Really? It's not normal? It's not normal. Okay. She was telling me a little bit about what it takes to grow vanilla. It's apparently quite a hard crop to grow um, because it needs a lot of water. And for Bimajo to get water to her plot, she has to walk quite a distance. Of course, what she said is that the hardest work she's doing here is watering the, this plants because there's no water source. The water source is down. So there are definitely challenges in, in growing vanilla. Another challenge is that it needs a lot of shade, and that's why she was advised to plant taller trees like banana trees um, or other fruit trees in her plot so that the vanilla would have the shade that it would need to thrive underneath. And so you sort of wonder why, why would you choose to grow vanilla if it's so difficult? But there's... Um, there's a lot of value. Vanilla has a has a high price. So she hasn't been able to grow any that she could sell as yet. But she's very enthusiastic about what this might bring for her and her family in the future. And so far, she said they are doing this because they know one day they'll be gone. They'll be going. Now they're inspiring their kids to understand how they can 
they can understand the effect of climate change. There are definitely distinct challenges for women who are trying to do something like this. The community forest Pemba is is very interested in making sure that there's uh, a gender balance so that they are reaching out to equal numbers of uh, men and women in getting them interested in doing projects like this. It is the aim of this is to make her believe that anything is possible. We can transform even the, the degraded land can be transformed. And now I think she is in position to say that everything in this world is possible. It's just a determination. Community Forest Pemba has started a partnership with Lush Cosmetics, which is a UK-based company. And Lush gave um, a small grant to get this Spice Forest project up and running. But it's also signed an agreement with the Farmers Collective to create a supply chain so that the farmers in Pemba who are growing vanilla, they know that they have a guaranteed market for their product. That eliminates a lot of risk for the farmers, um, and it's encouraging a lot more people to join onto the project and to start growing vanilla and doing it in the way that Community Forest Pemba recommends, which is a, a permaculture approach and really building climate resilience into the way they grow their crops. When I was a young boy, there was very few insects here. Normally when I was young with my mother, we used to grow rice. The only pest by that time was bad. There was no his, rice hispal and other, maybe stock borers, there was no there. No chemicals, and we get... One of the things of that really struck me in talking to people in Pemba and asking them about climate change was how much they understand it as being caused by their own behavior or humans in general. I think everybody now has experienced that uh, there is something wrong. Me, I know that this is a climate change. It was sort of like and they didn't see, um, they couldn't they see it beyond just what's happening in Pemba. Not that they couldn't, but they didn't. It, they didn't see the wider connectedness of global supply chains or pulling fossil fuels out of the ground or, you know, our economic system and how that has a, a role to play in what's happening in the environment. And that's not surprising, but the fact that they took it as such a personal responsibility was surprising. There's a pollution from industry. There's a cutting of trees. Chemical. We use a lot of chemical. I almost wanted to tell them it's not your fault. Yeah. I feel like here in North America, when we think about climate change, we, we all, almost always say it's someone else's fault. We feel very sort of passive or helpless about it. So for those who said that this is a punishment from God, they are right. And those who believe otherwise, also they are right. But the people in Pemba felt very much like the effects that we're feeling were caused by something that we did, but also that means that we can fix it. We can change the way we do things and, and we can regain a better lifestyle, a better environment. An NGO like a CFP, 
to to try to to put farmers together and see how how we can at least minimize the risk of of climate change. In other words, we can say that the CF, CFP is trying to to give a, a means of living with with the climate change. In Swahili, we say Mungu akikupa kilema hukupa na mwendo. We have to to accept that there is a problem, and now how we can survive with this problem. That's why CFP is here and other NGO. So Mbaruk, who runs Community Forest Pemba, does have a lot of hope. He really does think that the the activities that he and his team are running are going to make a difference, and they're already seeing them make a difference. So he really does think that even though climate change is a huge problem, he does think that there's a solution. What's your vision for the future of Pemba? Maybe 10 years, 20 years, when you're small daughter is, mm-hmm. is grown? Yeah. For me, my, my vision, I believe that uh, after 10 years, we shall have a big change say, in, in different areas. Getting the support that he needs in order to keep the project going is, is a top concern for him. And he was talking about how when he talks to donors, they, they want to support health programs or they want to support education programs or maybe infrastructure programs but his answer to that is but all of this all of this the core mama the core mommy is a climate change is a climate change all of those programs are about climate change so you really need to start there um Health issues are are affected by climate change. Education issues are affected by climate change. Infrastructure is absolutely affected by climate change. So to him, the, the starting point is always, let's fix this problem. So if I come back in 10 years or 15 years, yes. what, what will I see? Yes, I believe that you will you, you, you see change, big change there. I believe. I believe really, that. you know, when you yeah. when you think about climate change these days, it's so wrapped up in in politics and also in in science. I you think every time you hear about climate change, it, there's always a scientist being quoted, and they're always talking about greenhouse gas emissions and um, big concepts that are sometimes hard to understand. And what was really amazing about going to Pemba and talking to the people that I met was um, really how simple this story actually is. These are people who rely on nature for their survival and their survival is at risk right now because of things that are changing around them. Um, They understand that and they're trying to do something about it. And it's as simple as that. And I thought that was really kind of amazing. It, it doesn't need to be wrapped up in so much complexity. It's, it's a very simple story. Thanks for listening to Down to Earth, a podcast from the International Institute for Sustainable Development. IISD is an independent think tank that delivers the knowledge to act through research, science, and analysis 
we tackle the root causes of some of the greatest challenges facing our planet today. Find out more at www.iisd.org. This episode was created by Zara Sethna. Special thanks to Farat Ali Mbaruk, Mbarak Musa Omar, Bakar Mataka, Hamid Mwitani, Bamajo Juma, Yaya Suleiman, and Omar Maselem. Thanks also to the teams at Community Forests International and Community Forests Pemba. Down to Earth is produced, edited, and mixed by Carmen Clausen. Find more episodes at iisd.org slash podcast. If you have questions about what you just heard, other thoughts about this episode, or ideas for a future episode, tweet us at iisd underscore news.